welcome. So this is the very, very first podcast, which I'm pretty excited about. And for our first guest, we have the wonderful, incredible woman, Margie Lou Dyer, who's a prominent jazz musician in Melbourne, Australia. Um, she's been around for a really long time. She's got some really cool, crazy stories. Um, had heaps of fun chatting with her. So if you're a musician, artist, or interested in music, or just a person that just loves other people or doesn't, I don't really care. But uh, yeah, she was heaps of fun to chat to. So buckle up. This is a good one. It's fun. shortly I swear this is shocking I reckon it'll be alright you reckon yeah it's brand new it's straight out of the box should be fine I guess I had broken one this morning as I said and um, I was like I need an emergency mic stand and he's like I've got a good cheap one here for 40 bucks I'm like I'll take it yeah and it's exactly the same as the one that um, is the one that broke so where do you go I just went to South Melbourne. Um, Factory Sound. No, I went to the Acoustic Centre. Oh, good. Because that's where I get my strings from. Ah. Yeah, get my Alexas for my guitar, which I actually bought today and we can talk about that as well. Cause... So, actually, that's a good place to start is um, why I've decided why I wanted to ask you to do this, to, to chat. And music's always been a really, really big part of my life. Um, and what I think is, is my makeup of a big part of who I am. Um, so I figured you were a good person to start with because I know Hayley quite well, your daughter. And um, yeah, and I think, I think you're an amazing musician. So, and people probably don't know enough about you. <laughs> I'm actually. <clears throat> As I play more and more, I actually like having a low profile. I'm really not into fame. No. Or money. And the only thing that matters is live performance for me now. Recording's fine, but everyone I know who produces an album, it has a moment in the sun and a lot of hype and then it's gone. So you've got to treat, I think, your musical career as live performance and try and document what you're doing now and again For through sure. recording. But I hate recording. I hate it with a passion. But I always learn something and something new will always come out in a recording which surprises me. <laughs> I, yeah, sure, sure. Every time. Because you've just, you've just done an album recently, haven't you? The Old Diggers Picnic, which is um, a code word from my grandfather that um, meant to have – was code to stop my grandmother finding out he was having a couple of Abbott's Lagers at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was an Old Diggers Picnic in the garage and in the garden. Yeah. And uh, he was extremely funny person. So that was my childhood with him because he was um, – a father substitute um, because my dad, as some people would know, was a musician and um, 
he was killed after a gig um, and uh, that left me at the age of two um, without him. So that's where my musical love probably emanated in trying to find him through his music. So he recorded and was very famous for his time and he archived a 600 album collection of every major artist from New Orleans, um, mainly Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton, Bessie Smith, Mahalia Jackson, Muddy Waters, Champion Jack Dupre, all the great blues. The legends. All the legends. legends. So that was my um, portal into his life and it was sustaining, apart from the fact that I could hear him singing uh, when his records were played and actually until I was about five or six I thought he was inside the radiogram because it was this life force. It was very odd. Um, And I thank him for the legacy because it just never stopped. It's never stopped from the age of um, nine uh, when I learnt my first blues and started classical training. For sure. The best, and also I would play along with his records yeah. and Jelly Roll Morton to learn. Uh, so I felt like I was in a band. That's that's amazing. That's um, that's something I was going to do was get to that. I think you've got a droopy mic. I do, you're right. These things did it. It did it, didn't it? It went there. It actually reminds me of when I'm at the piano and it does that. Oh, it's a nightmare because I <laughs> I end up with my head down almost between my knees to follow it and keep singing because you can't stop. No, you can't. In the middle of a song. But I know the problem. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't yeah. – it, oh, that's just shocking now. Yeah. And, 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 and that must be – is that – I, th- I think that's become almost like a. Um, is that? Do you think that's become part of like? Do, do you still have that problem now of the mic, the mic dropping? Well, you, as you know, you keep replacing stands with the hope. Oh, that's shocking. That that they'll be reliable. I barely got one hour out of that stand already. Oh, it's not even. It's been what two minutes. It's yep. dropping already. Yep. They they are the hard aspects of. Um, the, the minutiae of being a musician, all these bits and pieces, when all you want to do is just get your best sound and yeah. not fight the equipment. I think that's a technology thing, though, like in general. Like I have that same problem with phones or anything that any, – any sort of technology-based anything. They always say that technology is there to make it easier for us. Yeah. And then, then constantly I'm, I'm, I'm constantly fighting the technology to make it bloody work and it never works. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard. It's hard. Um, And so the same applies with your instruments, of course. For sure, yeah. And in the end, I think if I can be on a trustworthy, beautiful acoustic sound, uh, which I can't, I need need amplification for singing um, because I've got a lot to uh, compete with if it's a five-piece band. Yeah. But if it's just the piano and me in this room, it's perfect. There's nothing to get in my way. It's just me, my voice and the instrument. And that's great. But that's pretty unusual. Yeah, it's pretty rare for – there's a few a few places that I played, I remember, and you would go to like – almost like the French cave sort of 
um, <clears throat> bars where they have the bar on top and then underneath they've got yeah. the dungeon kind of and the music's played down there and the, the acoustics are so terrible. But I think it almost, in a way, adds to the atmosphere of the music because I think, I think, I think people generally understand that the, the music, the sound is not going to be its best, but it's, it's about being claustrophobic in a way and, and yep. close to the sound of the music. And I've played myself in some places in Melbourne where the, um, the sound is just... Is just dreadful and and uh, but I, I, you don't you know you don't play those venues because this you know you, you because of the you, the nostalgia or or the uh, who's played there before or you know because Absolutely. there's nowhere else to play because you're booked to play there. Yep, yep. So, um, but you're only ever you only ever well for me anyway. I'm only as good as my last performance, and we have fragile senses of our worth. And if the sound is really bad, then I just think, wow, it's time I stopped because I can't do what I want. Sometimes you get through it, but sometimes it's quite destructive. So have you done that? Have you actually stopped a gig before? I don't think so. You've like just stormed off stage? No. I can't work under these conditions? No. No, but we did have a gig at the new venue at the Classic Cinema, which has a jazz room. Sure. And it's a really lovely room and it was a beautiful gig and there was a false fire alarm. Great. And it was full on. It was the that sound that they give you on the radio, stop everything you're doing, look for the nearest exit and leave now. <laughs> so the audience started to go. And we were playing um, Strutton with some barbecue with Matt Jodrell, who's a beautiful trumpeter. Um, he was filling in for Eugene, who's equally beautiful, but Matt was filling. And we were doing Strutton with some barbecue and there's a key change that was coming up <laughs> and we were not prepared to stop. <laughs> and frankly, I understood the musos on the Titanic. We just said No. We're just going to keep going, fire alarm or not. We're going to go down with a sinking ship. Yeah. And we didn't leave till the fireman turned up in full regalia with masks and everything and said, you need to go. We said, okay. We just finished the song. That was so good. That's the only time I've ever walked well, out. And was the place, had, had all of the patrons that All the, of them. The, the theatre was empty, empty too. There are a thousand people on the street. We're all out there. So it was a decent-sized theatre too, wasn't it? Wasn't well, it? well, that's sort of adjacent to this little room. Right. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it was hilarious. So the band said, oh, well, we'll go out and have a drink on the street. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we actually got more people to come in because some of the patrons had come out and said, oh, well, we'll come into the jazz room now. Nice. So it was, was good. Speaking of, of – of, so, so going back a little bit, I suppose, to your childhood – and when you were younger and, and, and your influences and then how you started out playing blues. So jazz wasn't something that you went to immediately or was it always blues or? It was both. Yeah. Because um, I fell asleep often to the strains of Bessie Smith or Big Bill Brunsey or Jelly. So it was, it was a huge collection of all of those people. And we also had a lot of house parties. Um, <laughs> As in like rent parties. So it was always a live music, um, huge party. 
Um, so I didn't know anything but people coming to the house and playing their instruments. So I met all the most wonderful musicians, um, some of them my father's colleagues, some of the newer generations coming up. Um, and therefore I met people who said, well, I'll tell you what to do. Um, some of them were negative, which annoyed me because I was... Warwick's daughter and he had a huge reputation and they sort of said, well, you know, yeah, okay. Um, But there are others who said, I'm going to teach you. Roger Janes was a trombone player and he um, had a girlfriend called Jenny who played great boogie-woogie piano and she had four fingers cut off at the knuckles but she still (laughs) could play brilliantly and it was the 60s and she wore black tights and she had short crew cut, blonde hair, and Roger dressed like something out of uh, Charles Dickens with a watch chain and played the trombones. <laughs> and because my dad was a trombonist, my mother loved him. And he taught me Apex Blues in B-flat. And I thought this was the most fantastic mm, thing yeah. in my life. And um, I had an old reconditioned piano and the only thing I wanted to do was wag school and go home and, and play, play, which I used to do. I loved it and the house was empty because my mother worked and so I'd had the house to myself. And jamming away. I could just jam and I got caught so often. And so did you? were you singing at the same time? No. So when did you start? Because you've got quite the unique. You've a, a I didn't think of it. I did not think of it. So um, – the first band I joined was the Melbourne University Jazz Band when I went there the first year and I auditioned with a washboard because I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to do the piano. I mean, I can play a couple of blues, but really, I don't think so. Sure. So I went with a washboard and they said, oh, we don't need a washboard. Um, Jeanette, who's a mechanical engineer third year, she's our washboard player and um, – they were looking for piano. So uh, some hotshot third-year engineering guy was playing Fats Waller like there was no tomorrow and I was sitting there thinking, <laughs> oh, gee, I have no hope here. And uh, so he finished with a flourish and uh, Cam, who was the leader of the MUJB, said, well, just play anything you like. So I played Apex Blues and... Um, they said, do you want to join the band? Right on. And that was that. And they said, now, first gig is next week. And they said, um, look, come and have a listen to some of the material we're going to do. Uh, so we walked over to Story Street in Parkville and there were lots of records played. And he said, you know, we've been listening to this band. Do you know the Red Onions? And, uh, of course, Alan was in that. Um, and I'd been watching Alan since I was a kid because there were about 11 years between us and so my mother used to take me to the Red Onions and I'd sit on the floor. That's amazing, I didn't know that. And watch Alan play when, you know, they were the up-and-coming trad band and I said, of course I know the Red Onions. And then he said, you know, they do a lot of um, Frank Johnson's uh, material too. And Cam said, do you know Frank Johnson? I said, Yes, that was my dad's band. Oh, who was that? Oh, Warwick Dyer. He said, no way. (laughs) So it was so fantastic. But um, he said, we're going to do Wolverine Blues. I remember this well. And I've only just started playing it again in the last year. 
and I saw all these chord symbols. I knew some, but I didn't know what a diminished was, and I was absolutely terrified. So I rang a friend of my dad's who used to play piano in the Frank Johnson band, Frank, and I said, Frank, I need a really quick lesson. I don't know what these symbols are, and I've got a gig in four days. And he said, oh, you'll be fine. Come over. He said, it's based on the scales. You know your scales? I said, yeah. Do you know your arpeggio? Yeah. Okay, this is a diminished. So I did this really fast learning thing and I was dropped straight into it and did my first piano gig. So I wasn't singing at all. Um, I was just doing this piano thing and I loved it. I loved it and got heaps of gigs in the intervarsity stuff. And sure, yeah. Really great fun. And so what, what, what year was this? this that is... was about 73. Right, okay. And uh, I almost failed because uh, I was having such a good time in the band and sort of, you know, the usual romance, which one, clarinet or trumpet, they were both asking me to go out and I was sort of thinking, I'll answer the phone. I ended up going with the trumpeter and... Um, that was sort of a romance that was turbulent and great and then terrible. I nearly failed, you know, when that broke up. Um, and he, Julian, was um, a classically trained trumpeter and very pedantic um, and his mother was a concert pianist and she was very pedantic and they were sort of looking at me being not a sight reader. I'd trained but I wasn't um, that sort of... Theory, yeah, sure. No, I wasn't. I was terrified of sight reading um, and uh, my music teacher was too gentle. He didn't push me. Yeah, okay. So um, anyway, so that was how I started and I've not been out of a band since. That would lead to another one and another one and another one. It went on and on. And then in one band called the Crazy Cats, which worked an awful lot in the 70s, um, I decided to sing a couple of dad songs that I knew back the front from listening, which was Ace in the Hole and Big Bill Brunsey's Sugar Blues. And I still sing Sugar Blues. And that would be my two songs in the band that would feature and Mylenberg Joys. Um, and I just thought, oh, yeah, that's okay, but I'm really not a singer. Never consider, still don't really. Um, and then years after doing that, um, I had some classical singing training with a wonderful person, um, Kathleen Goodall, and that really taught me a lot about breathing. Um, but I'm actually a mezzo-soprano and I don't like the sound. And I don't <laughs> – it's weird. Really? I, it's beautiful when you're doing that style. Sure. But I wouldn't use it in this context, singing. No, okay. With blues. Yeah. Like, for example, what, what you're playing at the moment at, at Clay Pots, you wouldn't... No, because it's a much higher register. Sure. And I don't like my tone in the upper registers at all. And, in fact, all the people I listened to was people like Big Bill Brunsey who had a deep resonant voice and I loved that and so did my dad and so did Bessie Smith and so did Mahalia Jackson. That was, like, my favourite register. You know, and, the, you, and, and do you think that's where your voice so did you sits. try yeah did you try to carbon copy no no anyone what I did learn by listening by absorption is phrasing sure ah yeah which okay. is really difficult if you haven't absorbed it it's particularly West African 
and it's beautiful. And those who don't really understand that phrasing so don't what, know what you're on about. Yeah. What, so what, when you talk about phrasing, with the book, what, what are you, what do you mean? Mm. Well, it's a bit like uh, if you're reading Shakespeare or you're reading uh, a script. The rhythm. The rhythm and also how long you pause before you go to a next phrase and whether you make it a long phrase, a short phrase, come in a bit later to the sentence if you like. Sure. Um, uh, a lot of people always sing on the first beat. That's more rock and roll, sort of one and three, but Africans sort of two and four. And so if you're singing a song, quite often you will not start on the first beat of the bar. In fact, the longer you can wait, the better. And then it sort of – it compresses itself and it it's a head. This is the whole wonderful thing about uh, a jazz rhythm section. It's metronomic but there's like a line over the top that's moving across it and the rhythm section must not go with the other person. They might wait before they start but you keep moving forward. So it's a little game of chase. Sure. The phrasing and it's beautiful if it works, you know. And, um, yeah, you never sing on one. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you do in some blues, but pretty much I don't think one. I think at least two or um, three. Yeah, give, it, give it a minute. Give it a breath. Just yeah, breathe. there's a little yeah. space before yeah. you start and it's beautiful and it's something I'm still trying to perfect. Not overcrowding. Leaving space. That, I think that's why. I think like one of my, uh, like I've I've got a number of uh, um, musicians that I just oh that I just loved and I, you know I, I look up to a lot. One of them was Robert Johnson. I think he does that yeah. superbly. Yeah. Like he was a brilliant guitarist, um, but I think his vocals were equally brilliant because they were so raw and. In a way, they were kind of understated and so imperfect, and and especially I think uh, the thing that I loved about it most is is the recording styles that they had back in the twenties and the and the thirties and that they were, it was so it was like and go, do you know like yep. it's on tape and you've got just the one you you got it we, That's we it. can't edit and cut like I can now on this computer it's it's incredible what I can do now yeah and and back then it was like you got it. You got to nail it, and and you do. And I and for someone like Robert Johnson, and or it, it was it was so when you listen to it and you put on headphones and you listen to a good recording, you're listening to that artist is playing to you. Versus nowadays, you listen to some music and it's like you're hearing all the production, you're hearing the band, you're hearing mm. everything. And I just and there's some sort of dissociation or a, a disconnection that I have. With some music now, like versus twenties, thirties, all the way through to the seventies, and I think sometimes in the eighties there was some really amazing, like David Bowie, to beautiful recordings. But mm. you know, the Yardbirds, uh, early Clapton, even Elvis, his early recordings, they were so personal. They were, you felt I felt more connected as a person listening to the to that music, and, I, and maybe mm. that's why I know spitballing. That's why some music has stood to test a little bit longer than other music, you know, like why some albums are still around 80 years later or 40 totally. years later. Because it's honest. Sure, yeah. And I think um, with any sort of uh, performance, people pick up on honesty um, and they are honest and always the first take 
in my experience, is the best. Yeah. Every time. It's astonishing because, as you would know and people who record, if you do two or three takes, you can't believe how the tempo changes or there'll be something in the first one that's fresh that you can't get back. You'll find better bits of it in the other takes but it won't have that um, substantial wholeness and spirit. It's amazing. Um, so I don't know what that is. It must be very subconscious. Almost like that nervous energy. It's like when people yep. get too comfortable, it's just almost becomes subconscious or muscle memory starts to kick in. And, and yep, yep. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I completely agree with you. Like there's a number of times I've been in a recording studio and, and the first one, while it's been imperfect, there's more of an energy about it and you just put more of a buzz about it and... So that's why I never liked click tracks. Oh, <laughs> it's just like, tell me. oh man, I feel like a machine. <laughs> no, it's. I think that's so wrong, and that's the other thing I've noticed about musicians who play well together. There's almost a physical synchronicity as well. We're all sort of physically moving, sure, with the instrument and reading each other's physicality to some extent, even though it's sound, but. Um, I think that starts to happen as well. There's it's a language, this, though, isn't it? It's a really wonderful cohesion. Yeah. That, and that's why I love clay pots because we play every week, and that is very important to a band. How long have you been playing at clay pots for? Oh, about nine or ten years. Every week. Every week. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Plus a solo, um, I used to do as well. Um, so. That is a real plus and I wouldn't care if, you know, uh, it was the smallest place on earth. It's just playing every week. Um, It's intrinsically important. Do you feel like you're still getting better as a musician? No. And the more I do, the more I think I'm so bored with myself Um, and I wonder about what I'm going to learn next with um, singing. But I hear my colleagues, they, everyone repeats themselves. You can't not um, because you fall into comfort zones and then you know a phrase and you'll use it to good, great use and sure. it will always have fire. Um, but because I do a couple of solo gigs a week, that really bores me of, of myself and... I find it terrifying. I actually am so <laughs> nervous the whole time. I can't wait to stop, take a <laughs> break. It's weird. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I've been uh, singing hard this week. That's why I'm losing my voice. Oh, my voice is shattered at the moment. <clears throat> Mind you, it's other things. Um, but, yes, I don't know what I want to learn and... There are a lot of things I need to learn and I don't know whether I'm going to get it right. I've been practising as I used to when I was um, classically learning how to break up a piece into compartments and learn them one by one until the fingering's right, until it's muscle memory, which is a Jelly Roll Morton um, piece. And it's not that hard but because I generally hang to chords rather than melody lines – The right hand doesn't do a lot. This involves a fair bit. And so I've gone back to learning it and then I give up and think, oh, what a waste of time. 
But yesterday, after a couple of months going to and fro with it, I nailed a couple of um, phrases and bars. They they fell naturally without my thinking. So I guess I can learn and not give up too quickly, but I, I am impatient. And I've got lots of conceptual projects in my head. <laughs> what have you got? I want to do the planets. Um, I want everyone in the band to take a planet and write their own version of the planet and integrate it into the New Orleans Quintet. Um, and it doesn't ha- can be instrumental. Do you, do you, do you include Pluto? As a- yeah, because Haley was telling me that NASA has recorded the sounds of the planets and they all have their own sound, their really? own key. Um, so whatever they are, that's what people will have to do. I don't know where this site is. Also, I'd like to draw on some of the Greek mythology of the planets sure. as um, ideas for either words for song or instrumental and see what happens. But, I mean, it's a lot of work. I know it's probably a couple of years by the time we all get it together. Sure. But that would be fun and beautiful because I love do the you, idea you, of universal. I, I, do you find you – are you – are you a big fan of, of planets and stars and love it? You look up a lot. Love it, and I think you stop worrying about everything on the Earth sure. when you go to the stars. It just sort of takes you, and you think, "Wow, why worry?" Why? Well, it, it does. It, it always reminds me. Like I've always had a fascination with the galaxies and universe and stars. And I mean, growing up in New Zealand, we, I think, were. Very fortunate with the night sky that we have there. It's mm. you know, there's uh, it's incredible to be able to look up and actually see the shape of the Milky Way. You sort of whether or not you can or you can't, but ha- sort of seeing where you are, where the planet is, or where our you know where our solar system is on, on where we are positioned on the Milky Way. It it feels it's very humbling because you go, oh, you know, goodness, I'm I'm so small and. Mm. Not so insignificant, I guess, but just small and 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 almost it's almost pointless because it's and as you get older, you learn about light and how long it takes for things to I travel. Know, and you're like, I love it. You think when I was eight years old or four years old, looking up and looking at those suns, it's taken them ten thousand years, a million years for that light to travel for that moment in time to travel to where you are at the moment looking up at it. And it's like, you know, is it even still there now? And by the time if we were to get there, uh, it's I so I just I love the uh I love the night sky. I think it's incredible and then Oh yeah. And it's everything that we try and understand infinity and it's great because you can't. And I think it's nice to have mystery and a sense of you know, being so insignificant that you just don't worry about it. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So I love all that. So I'd like to somehow take that gargantuan concept uh, and confine it to a New Orleans quintet. So I think that's a good idea. Mm. I think it would be quite fun. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about – I have this um, – I have a strong belief, I guess, or this this kind of this thing about music being a, being a, a language and, and the international language that we that everyone speaks. It doesn't matter that where you come from, mm. uh, or what language you spoke, or if you don't speak, or 
uh, even people that are deaf and, and being able to hear and feel music and, and translate that and, and using that for emotion and, and, and mood. And I just love that that idea that music brings people together. And I think it also isolates people and, and you know, creates things to talk about. And um, I, I love the fact that for me, I always think of music as, as like the global language that we could all speak. Totally. Totally, and apropos of that, there was Monsalvat used to be um, a venue for jazz festivals. Monsalvat and Eltham, it's a beautiful place and it no longer is, sadly. Um, But I remember playing there and there was a a band from Japan uh, performing and they did not speak English at all. And they were brought out by Toyota. They were sponsored by Toyota. It's amazing. They had their Toyota suits and everything <laughs> and um, were all gathered out the back and they were smoking away as Japanese do and taking a break and <clears throat> they couldn't speak English but we'd just say, Louis Armstrong, yes, or, <laughs> or Potato Head Blues or one of Jelly's songs and then they'd go and play it and there was this Instant understanding. It was wonderful. And um, I just thought, wow, that breaks it down. You don't need to speak a language at all. <coughs> I might have to stop for a second. No, please. <coughs> I, I, the, the, actually, no, I no, was no, feeling... No, no, I don't... I, yeah, it's come back. I, I was feeling that coffee. actually before before we actually set up and then you gave me that wonderful cup of tea and I'm, I've, I feel a little bit clear and a little bit, a little bit better in, in, the, in, the, in the throat. I was uh, a little bit worried driving up here. I was like, oh, my God. I'd be coughing and spluttering. But, but um, you can edit my coughs out, can't you? No, this is, it was just going to go, boom. We're just oh, gonna, that's all right. Well, people, we're not going to do any edits. It's verite, like verite. Put it straight up there. Well, I have to tell you a really good story okay. if we have time there, because yeah, me. I was mentioning this to Hayley mm-hmm. um, that – there's a picture up there which you can't see, but it's a press photo of my father meeting Louis Armstrong. Sure. Um, and the Louis band came to Melbourne about three times um, in 1950 before I was born and then uh, after Dad was killed, so that was after 55, they came back. And then they came again early 60s. So I always had this understanding that Louis Armstrong was considered a god by my father and I had a picture of him almost on his knees playing to Louis with a huge smile. It's the loveliest photo. Uh, So I was nine whenever this was. Might have been mid-60s. I don't know. Um, And my mother said, the Louis band is here and when they go to the airport, uh, we'll go and see them as we've done for years uh, because my parents also hosted parties for Louis's band when they were in Melbourne sure. in Inkerman Street, St Kilda. That's why I love St Kilda. It's really part of the whole deal. Anyway, so uh, we went to Essendon Airport because Tullamarine wasn't built and uh, Louis was leaving and uh, my mother said with some friends there, there's Louis Armstrong sitting over there and he was having a coffee and a donut and he had his <laughs> wife Lucille with him and the plane was getting ready, warming up and they said, go and ask him if he would mind signing uh, in your autograph book. So I 
I walked up, <laughs> walked up to this beautiful man sitting there, and I still see the black patent leather shoes shining and white socks and beautifully dressed and this marvellous woman with Afro-red hair. And I said, excuse me, Mr Armstrong, would you mind signing my book? You know, I had plats and and he said, <laughs> sure. And I thought he was really going to sing strongly he was so quiet and so shy uh, and I've got the autograph up there and it's a treasure. And then his wife, Lucille, who was a gorgeous woman, I think his third wife, um, she said, I'll sign it too, honey. So she wrote in and it says from Lucille Armstrong oh, too. Um, and it's a very strong and wonderful memory. It's a great thing to have met this man albeit under those circumstances, but never leaves me. It's such a strong impression, you know. Do you use it as a kind of a totem in some in some moments when you're like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. right, this is where I come from and this is where I am yes. today? Yes, and how lucky was I to meet this man? Fortunate. You know? Lucky. I mean, it's a, it's a very fleeting part of your life but very powerful. So I do treasure that and think, wow, that's an unusual life and I doubt there are many kids in Melbourne who would have known who Louis was and met him. So that's pretty special, I reckon. Uh, when I was uh, in the small town that I grew up in in New Zealand, it's called Woodbury. I went to a small primary school. There was, I think, 20 people all up, including the kids and the teachers. There was two right. teachers. And we had a part-time science teacher as well um, who wasn't really much of a science teacher. But there was a semi-famous musician who lived in the village in Woodbury. His name's Jordan Luck and he paid, played in a band in the 80s, a New Zealand band called The Exponents, and they got quite big around the world. I'm not sure if you have heard of I've them. I've heard, yeah. Yeah, so Jordan Luck. And this is going into the uh, early 90s. And as a kid growing up, uh, while well, music was – I was – big sports as well and I was right into basketball and for some reason I was into collecting basketball cards and all that little cards I used to buy in the pack at the shop and um, one day Jordan Luck came to our school to speak as he did sometimes often because he literally lived around the corner and I suppose if he wasn't drunk he'd turn up and talk to us and this one day I went up to him and asked him can you please can I get your autograph, please? And I handed him a Michael Jordan oh, <laughs> basketball <no>. card. <laughs> I said, can you please sign this because your name's Jordan Luck and it's Michael Jordan. So I made the correlation that they were the same person. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. And that's that's about the – I think that's the only person I've ever had another thing about in my life had, had signed something that's, that's as close to uh, a celebrity signing – Anything of mine, I, could, yeah, yeah. I, know, I should actually ask him about that if he remembers it. I, I doubt that he would. Sometimes I push that memory back myself. I'm like, I can't, <laughs> I can't believe I actually did that as a, as a six-year-old yeah, child. Yeah, but you do that when you're that age. You don't have any fear. You don't have any sense of I had awe but I wasn't afraid. No. I just thought I don't really know what to say except, you know, clearly I, I – was so polite and so respectful because he was such an important man. I think, do you think that, I think 
celebrities of, uh, and how we view our idols as kids growing up, do you think that's changed? Do you think people like look at them differently now to what they did say? What you know? Yeah, probably. And and yes, because they were more untouchable then. Somehow oh, they 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 were harder to meet. I don't know. Some of them were out there signing things, I guess, um, especially in the cricket world and stuff. But in the music world, they seemed to maybe because Australia is so far away. Yeah. Um, it was lucky that Louis came here. Otherwise, I would never have met him. No. But possibly there is because of travel now. It's easier. To see the people you really care about. who Plus are, the internet. And, and the internet. But that sort of dilutes the mystery a bit. Um, I think there's a place for great artists. It's a little bit removed from you. They have a place. I wouldn't want to see them every day because it might spoil it, you know. I think about that mm. with people like for Jim Carrey, for example, mm, the mm. actor, comedian. And, and for mm. me, like I've, I've met a number of people uh, – you know, celebrities, actors and artists, musicians, and I, I never really get starstruck or, or anything like that. No. But I, I've, I've, for the, I have this thing with Jim Carrey that I have a fear of, not a fear, but I, I, have a, I don't want to meet this man because I have this idea of who he is yep. in my head and, I, and, and not that it'll ruin it, but it, I, especially now as he's gotten older, his art is inc- he's an incredible, <laughs> incredible <laughs> artist. Uh, he does the most amazing paintings, and 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 I, I feel like I want to keep that in a disconnection. I want to, I want to, that that, yeah, as nice. you said, that that mystery, the enigma of who that person is, and and I've always got this these visual representations of of you know of his artwork and who he is as a person. I feel like to know that or to have met that person, you know, yeah, because their art is its separate self, and you know when we hear terrible things about people, that mm. then you start. Oh, you can never stop loving the art, but it confuses you because it's a split personality, um, you know. Because a lot of art, I suppose, is a snapshot of that person in that moment. Yep, and I think their art has to be separate from their personal life. I really do. I said to Haley the other day, O.J. Simpson was so funny in uh, – wasn't Flying High, I don't know which one – with Leslie Nielsen, terribly funny – and yet the man is possibly, you know, has sort of stuff hanging over him with all the court case that suggests that's not the person and yet he was so hilarious in, in film. Um, so I don't know what I'm saying here. That, But I, I know I, I often forget that O.J. Simpson's an actor sometimes. I mean, I, I think as, I'm, as I was growing up as a kid, I didn't really know him as an actor. I'm... Probably mm. more knew him as like the person on TV. There's like, why is this orange juice person? Why is OJ Simpson like, got, you know, why is it, apart from it, why is it such a big deal, you know? And mm, I guess mm. it was because it was a such a huge celebrity. Mm. I mean, he's not as big as like some of the great writers and who were shocking in their personal life. And I don't, I don't really need to know that because. I just want to read if it's Tolstoy. I don't need to know he treated his wife badly at times. I don't know. I mean, that that does confuse me. So I like to keep them in their separate spot as beautiful artists. Yeah, for sure. You know, 
And if you did meet them and live with them, you probably wouldn't like them. You might. (laughs) (laughs) They might leave the dishes out (laughs) or drink your milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. You just don't know what kind of people they're going to be like. No. How come you never flushed the toilet? Yeah, all of that stuff. stuff. Stop using my toothbrush. They're removed. They're removed from all that mundane thing. And it's good. It's good. It's a good thing. Mm. How do you how do you feel the something else I wanted to ask you is because you've been around you've you've lived in Melbourne your whole life, right? Yep. Right. So and you've performed in all, all through Australia, but in Melbourne. Mainly like, Melbourne, yeah. How do you feel like the live music or just music scene, live music scene is going in Melbourne? Because it's gone through quite a decent sort of transition in the mm. last ten years mm. that I've seen in the um Lockout laws. Uh, a lot of the venues that I, you know, played in and, and loved going to, watching incredible artists closing down or getting really close to closing mm, down, mm, and mm. Um, DJs coming through. There's a bit of that in St Kilda, in that um, because of uh, apartment construction, people moving in don't want to be disturbed. Although the government did change that, fortunately, that once there's a live music district established, they can't stop it. Uh, But prior to that, we nearly lost lots of important venues because of gentrification of the um, lovely suburbs with the old pubs. Um, But Melbourne has one of the biggest live music scenes in the Southern Hemisphere. It really is equal to most places in the world and Melbourne's always had that reputation of being deeper artistically than say Sydney Sydney will love me saying that but I mean Sydney's (laughs) Sydney's beautiful but Sydney was always more glitzy and a little less Melbourne was a bit snobby because we were the intellectual capital city always was it was the cultural hub um and the music reflected that. Sure. So live music, they say, here is huge. It's bigger than Sydney. A lot of Sydney musicians are trying to move here and work. A lot come from Perth. Um, Perth has a wonderful music Perth, band. Uh, music, incredible bands, musicians come out of Absolutely. Perth? So Perth. far out in the middle of nowhere yep. and something in the water. Oh, definitely. All my some of my favourite musicians ja- within the jazz world have, have been trained in Perth, and they're wonderful. So it must be the con there in the jazz course, I think, um, in WA that's just producing wonderful, wonderful musicians. But I don't think there's a lot of music, live music, for them in Perth either. Well, it's <coughs> a small. It's quite a small town, isn't it? Yeah, and then a lot of musicians resort to teaching because. They have to, to, to earn a living. It happens with actors as well. Yep, yep. And there's always something lost if teaching is greater than performance. Sure. Because there's no better test in the world than live performance. There's no tricks. You, you just have to do it. And um, teaching can be a little bit removed. <clears throat> so I understand. But I've seen many a very good musician stay in teaching and then performance sort of sort of dissipates. And you've got to you've you've really got to keep with your 
performance that is another instrument itself in a way it you, is you've, you've really got to keep it tuned otherwise you lo- you do lose it and you feel Absolutely. and then you go back like i you know i haven't played a gig in i don't want to say seven years mm. six years seven years and so i you know i, I have a thing where I, i'm afraid of going back almost to playing because it's been so long and there's this almost too much rust built up now where the rust has become its own exterior shell and it's going to be quite difficult to break, maybe. No, but you'd be back in. Within a month. <laughs> give, it a, give it a kick. Within a month. It's just playing. You've just got to, that's right, you've just got to keep... Um, and there's no substitute. Uh, I mean, we all say um, one live performance is worth 15 rehearsals. Oh. Because you can stop and start and muck about and... Although I find rehearsal terrifying because it's my... Colleagues and I don't want to muck up with them, um, <clears throat> but live performance is the way. I love it. Mm. I loved it, and I always loved it more than recording. And well, I did love did love recording because you got to try things out, and you're you know you got to mess around a little bit and play yep. with the music and, and yep, sort yep. of find what you could what you could do with it. And it was nice to listen back to things and go, actually, that was that was really good, or that was rubbish. But music playing it live, it's again, it's you. You're you're telling a story. You're talking to someone in the audience, even if there's one person or there's a thousand people. It's well, they are different audiences to play to, but it's still you're still communicating and talking to them. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like, it's a it's great, great, great. It's like you know we were saying, music's a universal language. Just like people sharing their different food styles and stuff. Um, it's a leveler. It's a human thing. It's got nothing to do with nationality or gender or anything. It's just totally universal and I love that about music. Um, And I'm fortunate that the people I've always worked with are intelligent. um, They've largely been men. Um, But intelligent and I've never, except a couple of older musicians that were a bit misogynistic, but it's always been a wonderful egalitarian uh, ensemble and that's mm. a great, you know, great thing. To I always feel like with music as well, like people aren't competing with each other as much and, and not trying to be better than someone else. They're just trying to, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but build each other up. It's like a challenge, mm. you know what mm. I mean? And, and I love playing with other musicians for that reason. Is, you know, you, you, you test, you know, you feel the water out, you know, yeah. where are you at? Can you feel, you know, and, and then uh, and then it's not so much you don't down someone, you just, you know, you try to build them up and I love that challenge aspect and I still, I feel the same way about being an actor and, and doing a scene with yeah, someone else. Yeah, of course else. you would. You mm. know, I always feel like that's a bit of a tug and a, a, a push and a pull sort of challenge kind of, yep, yep. you know, can Definitely. you go, can you not? Yep. It's yep. really fun. Yep. Um, do you have any special instruments in your life apart from your beautiful piano? Do you have any? Um, do you have any? Have you? Have, is there anything you've like hung on to, or is there any? Like this, this guitar. <laughs> I bought, this beautiful guitar that I bought with me. I, I, I don't. I've has a quite a, has a little bit of a story to it. I went into a music shop here in Melbourne. I think it was a Manny's, I can't remember. And I've always wanted to tailor. Ever since I saw a tailor when I was in Christchurch and there was this weird carbon fibre guitar. I was like, what is that? Mm. 
So I pick up this carbon fiber acoustic guitar and I'm playing and it's a tailor and I'm like, this is the weirdest sounding, beautiful, bright, but it's just the weirdest, oddest guitar, really nice to play. And ever since then I've always wanted uh, a tailor. And so I always go into shops looking and they're always quite expensive, four, five, eight, ten thousand dollars for guitar. Whoa. Yeah. And this day I went into this Manny shop and playing the selection of guitars that you can as a guitarist, you can just pick up a guitar and, and just play it. And I played this this one guitar I picked up and I was like, just started playing it, just to sit, it just felt, you know, it was like putting on an old pair of shoes, yep. you know, or, or yep, yep, yep. this T-shirt you've had for so long, it's got holes in it, but you just don't want to throw it out because it's so comfy. And I remember playing this, it was like, this is really effortless to play for me, this is... Mm. This, Mm-mm. You know, what am I doing with all my silly other little guitars and instruments that I've got? And, you know, it's like $6,000. I can't afford this money guitar. This mu- and that's the other rubbish thing about being a musician. You paid 25 bucks. It. <laughs> and all your instruments are expensive. So I put this guitar back. Four years later, I go looking for a guitar. Uh, three years later, I go looking for a guitar. Back to the same guitar shop pick up this guitar and play it. I'm like, oh, this feels really good. Go up to the counter and like, oh, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll just put it on high purchase or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know what I mean? He scans it in, scans it in at like 80% cheaper than what it was in the price tag. And he's like, this shouldn't be right, but it's been here for so long. It's like, how long has this thing been here? It's like, oh, about two and a half, three years. And it was the exact same guitar that I played all that time. He's like... And that's the closest thing I get to fate because I'm not a big believer in fate, but, but you know, Jeez, maybe so it's going to hit itself behind another guitar or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if someone else didn't pick it up and, and want it. It was such, such a... You were meant to have it. Yeah. I, I just, because I, I really don't believe in fate, but it's the one thing that I've had in my life where I've been like, maybe that's the one fleeting moment where I'm like, okay, fate exists. But for me, it, you know. There is a fatal a fatalistic understanding about the fact that it was still there um, and that someone else didn't take it. That's it's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. It's a long time. So events could have changed things, but they didn't. <laughs> but then again, you were determined to keep looking for it. So that's your oh, that's interesting. Yeah. determination coming into it and finding it. Because I always, every other instrument that I played, I always compared it to it. Yeah, right. Do you know so, what I mean? I'd be like, oh, it's just like, and I'd play other Taylor guitars and I'm like, oh, it's, it's amazing. It sounds great and it feels good. But you just like have this memory of this thing that you played and you're like, it's just not, it's not quite the same as what it was. Or And then you start questioning yourself, is, is the memory that I'm having false? Am I making yeah, this yeah. up? Is this. But an instrument that you love is just your best friend. I, the piano is my friend. I've gone to it so often in my life with no one around and it just talks back to you and it, oh, it's just wonderful. And, of course, you playing guitar, it's its a tactile thing too. You have to use your senses to uh, play the instrument apart from your mind mm. and it's such a friend. It's such a friend and if it's a beautiful friend... You can go to it. It's always there. So other things are inconsistent but not your instrument. So, so do yeah. you, ha- you have a – how long have you had this one for this? Uh, that's about 30 years old and 
It came from some money from my father's estate and uh, we got it wholesale and we were living in the bush. (laughs) And I can't explain to you what it's like when you're on top of a hill and it's a windy gravel road and you see this piano truck at the bottom of the hill on its way up to the house wobbling Finally, then they unpack the truck (laughs) and there's a whole grand piano in pieces, in boxes. I mean, that whole thing comes apart, as you would understand. The legs come off, the keyboard comes off, the lid comes... It was all in bits. And they brought it in and they put it up and there's this instrument. I was just... (laughs) can't tell you the first time and it was in a really bright room. It was... Um, so it stood out because it's a beautiful black. It's a deep, deep black. Well, this was it? in Red Hill in a sort of crazy solar wind-powered house. And so <laughs> we had slate floors for absorbing heat at the right time of sure, year. Sure, yeah, yeah. And we had a solarium which was a glass box at the front of the house facing north which was also a way of getting heat Heat. in the winter, but then it had baffles and stuff in the summer. So so the piano was in a room off this solarium on a slate floor with just glass and timber and it was like it had ten decibels per string. It was so loud. It was – I thought, wow, I love this. I mean, you know, some people would like it softer, but I thought, no, this is fantastic. It's like it's mic'd up and I can really have fun with this and no one had played it except me and the action of that piano was beautiful Mm. because they take a long time to wear in. But it from the beginning had a beautiful action. Straight Um, out of the box. Straight out of the box. So that was 30 years. And it's recently been restored uh, by my piano tuner, who's 92. Um, And he restored it for the recording we did for Old Digger's Picnic in this room with that piano. And it's the most beautiful piano sound on the recording. I couldn't be happier to have been in this room. And uh, Jack used to restore pianos and he's, he calls me Margaret. He's very funny and he's got really thick glasses and he wears a hat and he catches the train from Carnegie and <laughs> um, goes fishing and tells dirty jokes and restores pianos. He's that sort of <laughs> gorgeous man. Yeah. And he said, Margaret, I want some velvet soap and I want some steel wool. And have you got an old shirt you can rip up as a rag? He said, I've got a few in my pocket and he pulled them out. Anyway, he stood over that piano. The strings were a little bit um, corroded from dust and moisture over 30 years. And um, he said, now the velvet soap will protect them, the strings, because it's got fat in it and it'll take the corrosion off without damaging the strings. And he said, did you know there are nine tonnes of pressure on every string in that piano? Nine tonnes. And uh, then he said, I'll come back next week. He spent two hours scrubbing the strings. Next week he came and I I came into this room and the keys were on the floor, the whole keyboard, 
everything was out, was pulled apart. Uh, and then he fluffed up all the um, felts because there's an indentation where they hit the hammers, hit the strings, yeah, and sure. they get dull. Yeah. Um, or they're too bouncy, I forget which way. So he had this special little thing and he just rubbed every little felt till it was just right. Um, and it was beautiful, beautiful. So it's been restored and he said that'll last another 30 years now without needing uh, any sort of restructuring. But the the people who make pianos say that no piano over 80 years old is any good as an instrument. It, they just can't be tuned and hold it for some reason. It must be to do with the wear and tear of the soundboard. Um, or maybe people just don't know how to restore them after that age. No, maybe not. But it is to do with the timber that's used too, you know. It makes a huge difference. Like I think that's yeah, spruce, Japanese spruce, and that's a beautiful timber. It uh, can expand and contract without causing too much trouble. It does it very gently. Sure. So there's all of that, like Stradivarius violins. It's the timber and the, everything in those that makes that tone over time that, you know. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how they restore, but I know pianos that there's a lot of pressure, as you said, on the strings. So I didn't know it was nine tons. It's oh, a lot. It's amazing. So if you let the strings, if it goes out of tune and flat, and stretches too much, you can never pull it back and have it stay because it's too much. It's You've got to do much. it all the time, tweaking and keep... How often do you get it tuned? Bad. Well, because Jack said I'm not tuning it, I don't trust myself anymore. Um, I did get another tuner just prior to... You should do it every year. Once a year or something like that. But when it's humid, as it has been, every piano I play in Melbourne is out of tune now because of... All that rain and stuff. Sure. It, they're very, very um, susceptible to temperature and moisture. It's just the wood, though, as you were saying. Mm, yep, wood. yep, all of that. So I have been a bit negligent. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's come back beautifully and held its tune. And so I'm very lucky. And I could kiss it and love it. It's just beautiful. Mm. Well, I think you should just keep uh, talking to it and allowing it just to talk back to you and just keep... Busting out that amusing, that beautiful music you keep doing, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. I love the bass end of the piano. Like I love deeper singing. I always love the bass end of everything, which is weird. And bass players are nice to me because because of that. Yeah, because of that. But also, they could be very cross with me uh, <laughs> because um, I'm in their space. You know, contemporary jazz players don't play where I do at that end. Um, they play more. Comping style, which I love, <clears throat> but I can't do. I'm too locked into that left hand attitude on the piano. I think oh, rhythm, I'm never it? going to change that. Um, but bass players are meant to do that in some more contemporary situations too. But um, Howard Cairns is so good natured that he simply duplicates my lines to a large extent, and then he'll do his own, and I follow him. So it's go for a little walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's lovely. It's lovely. I love it. I've got like double bass feel behind me and mine as well. It's really strong, you know. I don't know why I love the deeper end. It's resonant. I think I think that's maybe this is the vibrations, the frequency because yeah. it's something you can feel, you know. You can. You can feel you feel the tone. Uh, 
maybe maybe that's what it is. It's a, it's it's a, not as an audible response that you're getting as well, but it's also a physical one that you're getting. It back. is. It is a vibration. So it's just fantastic. So it's sort of like you know, if you put your head on someone's chest and they talk, you get mm. those yeah, soothing yeah, yeah. vibrations. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it. Sure. I'm sure it's part of it, and I'm sure it affects me physically. Um, in a therapeutic sort of way, I'm absolutely positive because my mood can change dramatically um, if I get into a song and I'm just alone with the piano. Um, I can be really changed yeah. by actually physically playing. So I wish everyone in the world could learn an instrument and play every day. I don't know why people don't. They There's need music. to. I think about this. I, I, this is something I think about. I, I, I don't understand why more people – and you, you hear people say, oh, like, you know, I couldn't, I can't, I don't have a musical bone in my body. I'm like – Rubbish. I don't know. It's like standing. I, I just – I look at them like – and music – not that I don't think it comes naturally to me. I didn't have to work – as hard as some people did, mm. but I still had to work hard at it. You do. But you work hard at language. You you work hard when you're a kid writing, you know, you, you work hard at mathematics and sums and uh, and the job or the career that you go off to, to do. And, and and for me, music, it's I often hear people, God, I wish I could play the piano or the, the guitar or the harp or, you know, I wish I could play the trumpet or, you know, I wish I could just play an instrument. You know, I, you're just like, you, you can I don't. I don't know why you why you why you don't, or why people more people don't play music. They need to do it as children, I think, because you do have more time, even if you're sort of given a strict uh, routine where you have to practice because it is a practice skill. It's muscle, and it's yeah. muscle. It's repetitive, but you get so much back from that once you've. It's a bit like if you're a good basketball player, you've probably spent hours practicing getting it accurate you know just throwing and throwing until you're uh, learning is subconscious so it moves from a very self-conscious learning to a subconscious learning and that's what you get from repetition and then you can call on that when you want to express a feeling because you've got something there to use it's a tool you know and I'm but I think anyone if they've got the time um should be learning an instrument or singing or, you know, any instrument. The only other instrument I'd love to have learned is the cello because, again, it's string and, again, it's got a depth. Um, and I think it just cries, that instrument. It's got extraordinary emotional qualities. It's a tone. I think the tone mm. in the cello is incredible. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's a bit heartbreaking, isn't it? It is heartbreaking but it's a really good way to – expunge your own demons again. Sure. That's what we're all doing with the instrumentation. That's what you're doing when you're acting. That's what you're doing when you're writing. It's a way of transferring your own stuff into another context where you're actually looking at it and dealing with it and it's really good for you. In fact, I wish I've always had this other crazy idea that everyone in the world would sing a note at the same time and it was recorded, well, you know, and have this huge global choir and all different notes and they'll all be dissonant and some will be harmonious and it'll be like order and oh, chaos. There's a – there's a. Um, I'm not much of a uh, classical um, orchestra kind of uh, choir music. It's just not – that and techno. I'm just like mm, – mm. that doesn't really – 
do much for me. But there's a, there's a an American. He's quite young. I think he's in his forties. Uh, American composer who had this crazy idea, quite similar. Uh, where he did huge a, a YouTube, I can't remember his name. He did a YouTube choir, so and he recorded and put out an album. Oh yeah, where I think it, I heard about yeah, that. Yeah, and he got like thousands of people. And yeah. I think the first one that he did was like I think he chose five hundred or, or one hundred yeah. or five hundred. I can't quite remember. Um, musicians, choir singers, that he auditioned around the world on YouTube, and then they sent in their audition through. I think they had maybe home studios or setups or something like that and they would and they all did a, a, a global collaboration um of of, the, of that song and uh, and different melodies and different parts and and because uh, all tenors and uh sopranos and mm-hmm. you know and i think i think that's amazing and, and again that's that i think that goes back to that global that global language and and um of music of everyone speaking the you know that music allows people to understand what someone else is saying. It'd be a lovely thing to do, wouldn't it? Because you could just do it with mobile phones. You could. The uh, microphones and mobile phones. They'd be fine. Amazing. They'd be fine. Just imagine having that collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult with time changes. You'd have to find a, a suitable. Uh, yeah, somewhere in the middle. Civilized for time the world. That, yeah, yeah. But I don't think people would care if it was three in the morning and. It was nine somewhere else and everyone sang at once. It would be just lovely. But anyway, some <laughs> some techno person might do that. You know how they have everyone turns the lights off once a year? Yeah, or, uh, yeah, yeah that, I do, that, yeah. that sort of thing except you turn on your voice That's and it idea. goes to some goodness. I don't know what the technology is for that, that it has to go to – it could go to the cloud or something, couldn't it? That that is so far beyond my technical. Mm, uh, yeah, me too. But it could, it and could. I like the idea of it going to the cloud and coming back to Earth. Just this one universal song from everyone on the Earth. I mean, you won't get some people wanting to do it, but I think the uh, the closest thing I came to that recently was reading a book. I finally started reading um, Bryce Courtney's mm-hmm, books. Mm-hmm. It's taken me years because my mother reads Bryce Courtney and Catherine Cooks. And I'm like, oh god, that bloody bores me. <laughs> And so I finally started reading and I, I wrote, uh, read one of his books <clears throat> about 18 months ago and loved it, unfortunately. So then started reading the other ones and I just finished reading um, The Power of One mm-hmm. and then the second book of that as well, Tandia. And there's a song they do like the, uh, the doc, this German professor that lives with a young boy. Um, he's an orchestral genius mm-hmm. and so he he writes the song called the song of africa and gets all the prisoners and all the blacks and that to sing this incredible song and they talk about this massive harmonious thing in this prison cell it's incredible and all at once without anyone sort of knowing that that they're all singing they just sort of all start and they all just sort of know when to start in and the different tribes and it, it's uh collaborative but also instinctual as well mm-hmm. there's like this mm. especially with that you know there's like with other musicians or cultures that have music in their culture that's ingrained in there, like the, mm-hmm. you know, the Irish, uh, a lot of the Africans and mm-hmm. the Jewish have a lot of music in their mm-hmm. culture as well. Mm-hmm. And there's almost like an instinct that sort of takes over and, and, and it's like there's no more beat sheet. There's, it's just like people sort of feel when and what sort of comes next. With, with yeah. uh, I don't know. It's, it's something that I read and I was like it's – yeah, I love all that. I love all that. And I'm sure we learnt to sing by the birds. 
I'm sure that's... And also I saw some soundscape artists work and it was the reeds growing somewhere in Canada or somewhere and when the wind blew a certain way it created all these tones and harmonies, just the sound of the wind through the reeds growing in this lake and it was absolutely beautiful and I thought, you know, we can't take credit for much that we... Well, we're very good at creating things and using them, but I'm sure the birds and the wind and the reeds and the stuff taught us how to hear sound and music. I have no doubt about that, you know. There's um, an English song thrush. I know they're not here much anymore because they're introduced and I don't think, you know, there are many of them around, but um, I heard one in Hobart two months ago, but I do remember one here in near the house and they sing a major seventh. Right on. Right on. And it's usually in the still of a coldish sort of night. So it carries. And it carries. And it's a major seventh. And I know the magpies sing B flat, A flat, B flat, F because I went out and documented the notes for one of the songs we did, The Magpie Stomp, and then another one I wrote on this album, which has got a coda, It's an, and it's a magpie call. And I checked it because I'd run in and check because I can keep a note in my head if I hear the birds. Sure. And it was always B flat, no matter what magpie. And it's sort of a part distress call, but it's a really groovy, <laughs> uh, it sounds like, I don't know, contemporary jazz uh, saxophonist sort of phrase. It's really good and I've integrated it into the coda of Old Digger's Picnic and it's definitely B-flat, A-flat, B-flat and it's the same B-flat every time. That's amazing. Above uh, middle C. So I'm amazed at that. And they all do it and they all sing in the same key and they all use the same notes. There's nothing I always think. There's there's one thing I miss about New Zealand is there's so many birds in New Zealand and you're just constantly surrounded by song. Yeah. And there is a lot of birds in Australia, but it's nothing like New Zealand. You go to New Zealand, you'll go camping or you'll go to the country and all you hear hear is birds, bellbirds, magpies. We get beautiful magpies, a little bit smaller than the ones here. You've got bellbirds too. Yeah. We get, we get amazing toys that sound incredible. All our birds are you know, gorgeous, except for the kiwis. It's kind of a useless little bird, the kiwi. I don't know Is what it? it does. It's pathetic. It's, oh. a, it's our emblem. It's like... I don't know what it's... It looks like it's a blind. very nice little bird. It, it is. It's cute and that's its problem. And no wonder it's <laughs> nearly bloody extinct. It's so... It's just... It's it's pretty quick for its size. It's a little fat little thing with... Hmm. Can't really see, can't fly. It's like a, it's like oh. a lazy chicken. Poor, tra- that's a tragedy. You mean to say they're nearly extinct? Well, they, yeah, they are in some in some parts. Yeah, there's some oh. certain types of little kiwis that were uh, made extinct because they're in the stoats and the weasels and um, dogs and cats being introduced mm. in New Zealand. They had mm. no predator apart from a giant eagle, right? And the, you know, and the Maori and the Moriori, you know, going back hundreds of years. But that's kind of it. And there's this stupid nocturnal, blind, long-beaked, stupid, fat. I'm sure incredibly good tasting kiwi that was like oh. running around eating hoo grubs everywhere. Oh, like, they look so lovely. They're pretty cute, but mm. and that's their problem. And I think that's a that's a bit of a shame. 
Anyway, the birds have taught us how to sing. I agree. And so has the wind. So, you see, we're lucky. Well, I think, I think we're all pretty lucky and I think we're lucky to have uh, – it's been amazing talking to you and I feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity and you've said sure to, to sit down and, and chat about a little bit over your life and your influences. And oh, it's been fun, Kieran. I feel really very fun. fortunate. So Don't feel fortunate. I just – it's just lovely to talk, just chat. Um, and um, remember some things myself that I'm, I might have forgotten. But so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you will keep learning. You will keep growing. You don't. You've I got a, a healthy unfair of 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 getting things wrong. I think I might. I'm just. There's only one thing. I'm I'm going to write another song to help me overcome the terror of um, failing in performance or making a mistake, which is called let's make mistakes. So. It's going to be the complete opposite of my whole life. When I was terrified of exams, terrified of performance, ter- always am, always has been, this will be my way of actually trying to make a mistake and the song allows me to do it. So that's going to be my next song, Let's Make Mistakes, before I do The Planets. I think that's a good idea. Mm. And so where can people... Um Find your music. Oh, goodness. I think I have a music page, but I never look at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't. And I don't really use Facebook, but I guess I'm there somewhere. And you're at Claypots. And, and I'm at Claypots and Kilda. Look, that's the that's the deal. You yeah. know, it's um, Barclay Street in um, – it's a lovely restaurant, but you don't have to eat there. You can just have a drink in the bar and it costs nothing and it's Sunday nights at 8.30 – Every Sunday. It's a good vibe. And people dance and smash up the uh, trumpet's mouth by falling over and all sorts of stuff. um, It's a proper live gig. It's a proper live gig and we don't have a wire cage, so it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much for sitting there and talking to me. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. So, as I promised, cool chat, cool woman. Uh, Thanks very much for being here. And I'll catch you guys next time. Peace.